Hello and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am Panel Camp of Washington University, and I am joined by my co-hosts, uh, Sarah Bay Jung of Bowdoin College and Harvey Young of Boston University. Sarah, Harvey, how are you guys feeling in the middle of the semester? Is your Do you still have a wave of energy at your back, or are you counting down the weeks until winter break? I, yeah. I would okay, put myself on neither of them. <laughs> I, 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 but we are coming off of, you know, we just had fall break uh, last week, so I can't complain. And it's, you know, uh, fall in New England. What could be better? Do you have foliage? We, oh, oh, we got foliage. Nice. <laughs> uh, Harvey, how, how are you doing? Yeah, for me, I think that we're finally at the point where the I feel like the semester is happening. Uh, as opposed I, to the welcome events and the more welcome events and the hey welcome again events right you know so it's like now we're at the point where it's like hey this feels like a, a normal routine is is happening so i like yeah. that i can't help but notice that you almost said quarter there you are you fully transitioned into the semester system or is there still the remnants of being on quarters in your brain somewhere? oh no, no after 15 years of the quarter system I, it'll, it'll take me a, a couple more years to uh switch back to semester so you know it, it gets brutal when i talk about um january things because i will default to winter quarter and no one knows what i'm talking about here you, you are in a position <laughs> you're in a position now though to definitively say are semesters better than quarters i don't know i don't know i mean my, my sense is that at this point i think semesters might be better uh only because at this point now the school year is shorter you know but last month i was missing my leisurely long summer i bet, I bet. <laughs> Well, listeners, today on the podcast, we have uh, three topics to discuss. We're going to talk about peer review. We read a few items of recent criticism of the venerable procedure of peer review. We're going to talk about its advantages and its disadvantages in the field. We saw, well, I should say two of the three of us saw the National Theater Live uh, stream of their production of Julie, which is an updated version of August Strindberg's play Miss Julie. Sarah and I saw that at local movie theaters, and Harvey uh, read some reviews. I missed it. We're going to talk about that experience. <laughs> yes, it's not it's not as easy to see as you might think, though. It, it Being in St. Louis, it was exciting to see um, a, a national theater production. We're going to talk about that. Um, and then we're going to talk about the ethics of undergraduate theater education in the sense of what are the implications of training undergraduate students for professions in theater when the uh, available jobs and the career opportunities in the theater industry itself are relatively paltry. This is a perennial issue that we want to touch in on. Um, after that, we'll have our drafts. And before those topics, there are just a couple of news items that we wanted to bring our listeners up to date on. MacArthur Genius Grants or MacArthur Fellowships were announced um, uh, last week, I believe. And a few people of note to theater and performance studies folks uh, uh, got these extremely prestigious awards. The playwright Dominique Morisseau, uh, the performance artist Wu Sang, and performance artist and choreographer Okui Pokwisili, whose work Bronx Gothic we discussed on this very podcast in episode 19. All three of these folks were named MacArthur Fellows, so a good year for performance in that category. 
Also, Tufts University hosted its fourth symposium of doctoral programs in theater and performance studies on October 5th and 6th. There were a lot of good tweets covering the communications that went on in that symposium that you can check out online. Also, a live stream of some of the sessions that was hosted by HowlRound. Um, Friend of the podcast, Noe Montez, published a long report of statistics about the recent state of the job market on HowlRound. We'll link to that on the website. And I also believe that we... Uh, it's safe to say that we are going to do a segment on the next podcast about the job market, and we can talk about some of that data that was uh, divulged. That symposium is a really important thing in the field. I think it's offered every three or four years. It's not annual, but um, regularly heads of, of PhD programs will gather in um, uh, Somerville at Tufts to to talk about the state of the field in that way. Let's talk about peer review. What is it good for? Um, We read some tweets examining and criticizing the institution of peer review by Peter Super, who's an open access scholarship advocate. We read an essay by Dutch media theorist Mikey Ball calling straightforward for the abolition of peer review. I have some mixed feelings about this, but Sarah, why don't you uh, serve this topic up for us? Why did you want to talk about peer review in this episode? Well, I, I I have a lot of respect for 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 Michael Ball. I think I think she's a really thoughtful person, um, both in sort of her specific areas of, of study, but but also as a uh, as a thinker about the field and academia uh, in general. And uh, I was really struck by this article uh, in part because I found parts of it so compelling and so true from my personal anecdotal experience, and yet my profound discomfort with the 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 premise that she that she advances. Uh, so what Duval does in this article is essentially to take up the question of peer review and to make a case for getting rid of it. And she does this by going through ten kind of key points, most of which cluster around kind of two or three different areas. One is that it's a cumbersome, time-consuming process that. Uh, is not well enough attended to, and so unequally distributes labor uh, throughout the field, burdens junior uh, scholars. The second is um, that it supports a kind of um, system that is not uh, advantageous, that it's hierarchical, that it's conservative. Um, that it tends to towards favoritism, and uh, and then the um, and then the the sort of third area. Um, is that it, it in fact doesn't do what it is that uh, peer review ostensibly aims to do, which is to ensure a kind of quality uh, throughout the throughout different publications in, in a given field, right? So the idea is that, um, and and her argument against this this equality is on the on the basis of of the conservatism of the thought, but also on what she calls the standardization. And that things become increasingly homogenized through peer review, and therefore um, that it diminishes the very thing that scholarship is supposed to do, which is to challenge and advance and test and contest new ideas. So, um, so that those were the and I again I find all of those areas extremely compelling. Um, I know this is true for for both of you, but I serve on a number of editorial boards. I frequently get asked to review things. Um, I can't keep up with it. Uh, so I end up, you know, uh, doing what Robin Bernstein on her blog uh, a few years ago, very sensibly, she's like set a, you know, like set your quota for the year. It's like I have this <laughs> many 
you know, peer, you know, book manuscript reviews that I can do. I have this many journal article peer reviews that I can do. And when I hit my quota, I, I you know, then I say no. Um, but I am aware, of course, that when every time I say no to something like any service, um, it's, you know, it doesn't make that job go away. It shifts it to somebody else. And so part of what Ball takes up here is like, okay, well, if, you know, who says if the most productive people say no enough, um, you know, where does it go? Well, ostensibly, it would go to the people who aren't being as productive or who are as not engaged with research or are not as busy with other things. So I found all of this extremely compelling um, in terms of evidence and a building an argument, as I as I often do with Ball's work. And then and then I sort of sat there with the idea of so you know, getting rid of peer review. Like, we have examples of that in the field. Like, what does that mean? And and I think it happens differently for books and, and for journals, but, but, but I found myself profoundly uncomfortable with the notion that we would just completely, I mean, that seems even more hierarchical to me. So, uh, it, so I, I, I have not made up my mind on this. Those are, those are the two different kind of uh, sides that I'm weighing, but I'm really curious how, how both of you responded to this. Harvey, what did you think of, as someone who I imagine also gets tapped a lot for, for reviews of one kind or another? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've experienced it from both sides, right? On the one hand, I've had to deal with it as an editor, I'm sort of tasked with you know, identifying multiple reviewers across the submissions that come in and it's brutal in August because everyone turns in their stuff in August uh, so you're trying to identify 60 people for example who can review 30 articles and, and that's that's a challenge um, but I also have the experience as a reviewer right you know, where you know people will email me and ask you know do I have time to review this this piece or that other piece my gut feeling though is that when you're in an area of performance criticism performance theory theater history uh, that you need peer review I mean for just um, there's such a degree of skepticism that exists within the academy, um, you know, ag against that mode of scholarship, sort of the, the mode of scholarship that we center ourselves in, uh, that to do anything that gives a sense of lessening academic rigor worries me. Um, so in many ways, for that reason, I'm, I'm, a, I'm in favor of peer review. And yet, in recent years, uh, article awards have been given to pieces that were not published in, in peer review system. I'm thinking of uh, James Harding's essay, which I believe um, came out in PAJ and won the Outstanding um, Article Award from ATHA last year. Um, and certainly regularly we see things come up in TDR, which has an adamantly uh, anti-peer review uh, policy. So I think it's also interesting what we also deem worthy of uh, exceptional quality and, and, and award status, and that those, sometimes those happen outside of peer review. Right. I mean, there is one case I know of, uh, and it's not anything you've mentioned, uh, but I do know of one article that went through peer review. Uh, the reviews came back and found it was sort of factually uh, inaccurate um, to the point where it's problematic. Uh, and I think that there was some part that might have been plagiarized, if, if, I, if I remember correctly. Uh, so it was not published uh, on the basis of rigorous peer review. Uh, and then it was published in a journal without peer review and then went on to win an article award. And it and it didn't have those problems corrected. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, a, that's so that actually, raises a question about like what is the review of the article award right. or the review committee? Oh. Yeah, that's, right. I mean that's actually a really Ouch. important 
case that demonstrates the validity of peer review. I, I thought that her criticisms were pretty good in some places. In other words, I agree that it slows down the publication process and that that can create a problem for PhD students. Increasingly, graduate students need to have an article out before they're on the market to sort of distinguish themselves. And if it takes two years, um, as it sometimes does, that's a real problem. I totally agree with her that it replaces or displaces editorial intervention. So I've, you know, in the in the various things that I've had that have gone through peer review, there you can tell when the editors are actually reading and investing and giving you suggestions in an editorial capacity, and then you can tell when the editors have basically used peer review to uh, substitute their own work of evaluating the article, and the reviews come back and they just do what the art what the reviews say. Um, so I, I think this is a overall it's a good argument for improving facets of peer review that are lacking. But I did have some problems with the arguments she made. There's there there seemed to be some internal contradictions. In other words, one of her points was that editors it, it weakens editors. They're they're sort of disempowered because um, the the reviewers are the ones evaluating. But then she also argues that editors will just choose the reviewers based on what they, the editors, know about the reviewers. So if they like an article, they'll send it to someone who they know is rather forgiving and kind. Um, and you know, conversely, if they don't like the article, they'll send it to someone <laughs> harsh. So that seemed to be a contradiction. But I think my main, I think my main uh, uh, point of contestation with, with this is that I actually think peer review, besides creating a system that tends to enhance quality overall and, and add rigor into what we do, that it actually provides advantages to junior scholars and to scholars who want to publish in areas that are not not uh, related to their training. So if you're a PhD student, if you're a graduate student and you submit a journal through blind review, whoever's reading it on the other side doesn't know that you're a graduate student, doesn't know where you were trained necessarily. You know, Ball describes these situations where reviewers will work out their sort of petty, you know, professional rivalries by torpedoing each other's advisors' work. But in my experience, peer review allows you to get your work judged on the basis of quality and not your reputation or not your your rank. Um, and it's not that it's easy and it's not that reviewers are always fair or good at their job. But to me, that's a protection. That's a way that you can actually um, avoid the the sort of interpersonal um, and political dynamics of the field and get quality work through early. So she doesn't examine the advantages of peer review at all, which I think are pretty substantial. Not to mention the fact that I think peer review uh, as a broad practice actually uh, sits on top of a number of much more specific mechanisms, right? So one is double-blind peer review. Um, another is, is you know, the ways that journals um, work. And not all journals work the same way, right? I mean, so some journals have really robust uh, associate editor responsibilities in which people are essentially shepherding specific pieces through in the, in the editorial process and um, and are working very closely with with authors. Um, some editors, again, also work very closely with authors and really use peer review and are reaching out to to specific people. Um, and 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 as you sort of highlight, panel, I mean, there's there's a uh, there's certainly a uh, you know 
like range of quality that we get from peer review, right? Like some some reviews of our work are better than others, and uh, but it, uh, overall, I think it it is really helpful. I'm I am curious though about this question of of conservatism, and I wonder. Um, Again, you know, I think this is something that comes up in a field that is, again, relatively small, right? So Ball is coming out of, you know, a particular tradition and and the ways that peer review circulates in media and, and cultural studies and, and literary studies more broadly in, in Europe and beyond. But, you know, theater and performance studies is a, is a much narrower field. So ostensibly the band of you know, the, the pool of potential reviewers is is smaller. Do you do you get a sense that there is a, like a tendency towards conservatism and, and a sort of to publish what seems familiar and recognizable? That makes sense as a critique of the institution, you know, a priori. In other words, you would expect that if the people reviewing are established, they've been trained and inculcated with you know, the the history of these institutions and these practices and that there'd be an inherent conservatism in it um, by having people who've benefited from the system vet the stuff that comes through. I mean, this is what we call gatekeeping. Um, I just am not convinced that that element of conservatism is bad. Mm. You know, she frames this critique as being of the neoliberal university, but to my mind that, you know, universities still, as corporate as many of them are, are still kind of uh, bulwarks against the complete saturation of our lives by um, capitalist uh, modes of thinking. And in that register, conservatism, the, the conservatism she's talking about basically prevents, I think, a kind of capitalist mindset uh, from taking over publishing, which would be whatever the new thing is, whatever's innovative, whatever gets your attention, whatever's exciting is the thing that's going to go into print. So I think as much as I think conservatism is something we should be wary of in other iterations, I think um, having these sort of older modes of vetting scholarship can be a good thing and can prevent us from getting carried away with, you know, just new trends. And plus, we're in a we're in a field where a lot of new trends take off very quickly. And I don't think that whatever conservatism is inherent in peer review in theater and performance studies is necessarily preventing um, new areas from flourishing and, and exciting new stuff from getting into print. Yeah, I mean, for me, my sense of it is that the future of publishing really relates to what choices are made by editors uh, and like who are the people who are being sort of encouraged to edit journals, for example, um, and then giving them the freedom to uh, take risks, right? So, you know, so it really begins at the level of the editor who um, gives voice you know, to the contributors. Uh, that said, I think that if you look at the structure of the academy at large, it's one that's really premised upon peer review, right? From uh, dissertation writing, uh, where you have a committee, uh, to going up for tenure uh, as well, where there's external letters that are being solicited. Uh, so at each level, it's, you know, what is the standing of one's peers, you know, on the quality of your work, even at the level of uh, academic program reviews or department reviews or school reviews, you know, people come in from outside to assess what works well, what does not work all that well. Uh, and so this is just an extension of what makes the academy function. You know, so I think of it in that manner. I'd also say maybe in, in response to something, Sarah, you brought up at the beginning of the segment about you know prizes being awarded to articles that aren't peer reviewed. I think TDR is an example of, and other journals are an example of the fact that high quality work can and is published without double blind review. 
Um, it's not that the quality is impossible. And I think, you know, I have mixed feelings about uh, TDR being non-peer reviewed because it's so important and so prestigious. And yet, you know, it, 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 it there are very clearly things published in TDR that would benefit from um, a more strenuous review. I'll say that. Um, but you can have brilliant work by brilliant scholars without peer review. And so perhaps the best world is one in which there are journals that are not peer reviewed, that are, have a stronger editorial guidance. And then the bedrock of the field is rigorous, double blind, blind peer review. Um, and that it's transparent, so people know what what is and what isn't, um, and a mixture of editorial procedures can benefit us. What did you guys think about the Peter Sobel argument about the, you know, uncompensated labor of review, of the fact that it's you know, and and he was talking about the sciences in particular, but the same thing if you applies to us, that there are hundreds of millions of hours overall spent. Um, doing peer review, it's not compensated, it's burdensome, it's getting harder and harder to get people to agree to do this work. Um, is this a problem that needs to be addressed and what could be done to help with it? I mean, it's, it's not compensated on, on one level, but you know, from another perspective, it is. Like if you think of one's uh, position in the academy for those who are you know, in a tenure stream or full time uh, where there's uh, time set aside for research, I suspect that part of that time is set aside also for a service to the field. Uh, and um, we factor in service uh, to the field as one of the factors toward promotion. Uh, so it's compensated in that uh, oftentimes one's teaching load is reduced from um, you know, what could be from six to eight classes to you know, within a tenure track system, perhaps four to five, you know, and that space that's given um, is for one to develop their own scholarship but also to serve the field. So I think of it in, in that manner. Uh, I've yet to encounter uh, at least academic presses that are making lots and lots of money, <laughs> you know, uh, from uh, peer review, and uh, not from peer review, but from publishing journals. Uh, so, and, and then even the academic journals that do generate profit uh, off of the journals, so J Johns Hopkins Press, you know, they tend to give that money back to organizations like ASTR or ATHA, which then reinvested in terms of professional development workshops. So it all comes around. Um, yeah. I mean, ideally, I think if, there were, if, if, if more people purchase books and more people subscribe to journals and then the journals can make more money, then I would like to see journals compensate reviewers. Uh, but we also live in a world in which um, you know, people tend not to purchase books. <laughs> you know, they tend to photocopy and, and upload art, uh, chapters. They tend to you know, rely upon uh, these online library databases to access articles rather than subscribing to the journals themselves. Um, you know, so let's acknowledge our own role in um, you know, not uh, financially supporting the journals that we need to make our organization and make our academic livelihood possible. Indeed, yeah, and I tend to agree with you guys that the work that, you know, people like us who are tenured and produce research, we're expected to do some vetting of the work in our field, and I, and I think that's fine, personal, personally. Um, we saw, two of us saw, the NT Live, National Theater Live, uh, stream of the production of Julie, which is an updated version of Miss Julie in a new adaptation by Polly Stenham, directed by Carrie Cracknell and starring Vanessa Kirby and Eric Kofi Abrefa in the roles of Julie and Jean. So Sarah and I saw these in movie theaters near us. Harvey checked out some of the reviews. I know that uh, Sarah has some thoughts. I have some thoughts about this production. Um, but we thought we would ask Harvey, on the basis of what he read, to ask 
us things about what we <laughs> saw. Um, so, Harvey, do you have any questions for us before we launch into our yeah, theater critical mo- yeah, mode? I, and, and I will say that one of the challenges with the National Theater Live broadcast, uh, it's, it's the way it's structured, it's, it's like um, not every theater can play uh, a National Theater Live broadcast. Uh, so usually there's one within a certain number of miles from the next one, uh, and it plays for a weekend, possibly two. Uh, and as it turns out, those were two weekends that the one theater that was in Boston uh, that was playing it, I could not attend those productions. Uh, but I was interested. But in reading reviews, you know, one thing that stands out was this concern that some of the uh, emotional hits, you know, the social relevance of the play didn't quite translate in the contemporary adaptation uh, because the idea of being in relationship across class lines doesn't have the same punch that it had in the 19th century. And I want to get, get your sense, uh, both panel and Sarah, uh, on, on, you know, did the, you know, that sense of, of of transgression across class lines uh, register as profoundly in this production as you might have imagined it had been felt you know back in the 19th century when people first experienced this play i'll respond quickly i i would agree with that criticism um i don't think that in you know it's a it's it's meant to be updated you're meant to feel like it's the absolute present moment i think that the class inequality dimension of it is very um, applicable to our moment in other words this is a world and you, you know you imagine you're in london in this production where there are just people who are absolutely obscenely wealthy and then there are people who work long hours for a living and have dreams of having property one day. Um, and so that kind of disparity between um, people's material wealth, I think, translates well to our time. But in the dramaturgy of Miss Julie, the 1888 Strindberg original, there's a sense in which you know, two people from across these boundaries, for them to have sex, for them to try to make a life together is absolutely impossible and impossible in a kind of moral way that I don't think translates to today. And so in this production, as in other um, uh, uh, revivals, recent revivals of Miss Julie, having Jean be black, I think is meant to convey another sort of dimension of the class boundary. Um, and at least in this production, you know, I, I don't know that the, the, the idea that Jean is of African descent is supposed to be a kind of additional boundary or if it's more of a kind of colorblind thing or meant to reflect um, a sort of part of the contemporary social fabric of England. But um, the barrier to them being together, I don't think, really can be as um, as insurmountable in, in 2018, or it certainly doesn't read that way. They can't be together for other reasons. In this production, basically, it's the fact that Julie doesn't really have any money. She, she depends on her father's money, and she couldn't get any of her own, and so they can't move on. So I would agree with that criticism. What did you think, Sarah? Well, I think for me, what what happens in a lot of updated translations is that it loses the the symmetry of the tension from the original. I mean, the what's what's kind of great about um, Strindberg's is that Julie is rich but a woman, so she has certain kinds of power, but she lacks others. And um, Jean is you know working class but a man, and so he has access to other pa- some power and not to others. And the fantasy is that somehow they can transcend their limitations through each other, that Jean can liberate Julie through gender and Julie can liberate Jean through class. And the tragedy is when they both realize that neither is powerful enough 
to um, overcome their own limitations and even and 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 to rescue the other, right? And so there is this moment of profound frustration in the original here and and it's and it speaks again in the original to forces that go beyond the individual psychology of the characters um that there are systemic reasons for that tension and for those for their inability to to achieve what they want here the uh the 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 translation because of its updating um and because the gender dynamics have changed so profoundly um all these other things get, need to get layered in to trap julie right like um so um it's no longer a problem that she's a woman so what's going to hold her back well she's been traumatized by you know finding her her mother um dead right and then and she's held back by her own foolishness and silliness which is not a product of her society but is a product of personal moral failing and so it, it just we lose all of that kind of innate dramaturgical tension because they're not actually symmetrical anymore um because Jean can leave, right? He is not actually tied to that land and to that place, right? He has he has other labor options. He's in London, for goodness sakes, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not to say that there aren't economic oppressions and difficult, you know, that the labor market is tight and difficult, but, but he's not trapped in the same way that the original Jean is, nor is Julie, except insofar as we attribute specific moral failings to both of them. And then it, and then we then it's not a play about systems, right? It's a play about two people and their individual problems. And, you know, that's like, uh, as the great man said, uh, you know, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree. It, it You end up with, I think we might have different readings of the original Miss Julian. Admittedly, I haven't read it or taught it in a long time, but... Strindberg, the part of what's in the original Strindberg as well is that this is antagonism. Strindberg understands sex difference as being kind of a death match. And in while, while I do think there's the there's an element of tragedy in it, like could these people work their way to be together? I also think that it's, you know, that the way that Julie dies at the end of the Strindberg um Jean is implicated heavily. He hands her the razor, right? And they don't do the they don't translate that bit of it into the original. Jean is he's much more sympathetic. I think he wants, you know, he 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 commits an act of infidelity. Um the third character, Christine, um is much more developed in this version than in the original, and I think you're supposed to feel that Jean is is implicated, as Sarah said, by a kind of moral failing, but there's not the moment when he says to Julie, you know, this is our way out. This, you kill yourself and that solves both of our problems. And so the the play has a very different feel and it ends like, a, it feels like a kind of sentimental tragedy about a wounded person who, um, you know, takes her own life because she's lost instead of, as Sarah says, you know, because of systems that would sort of force that to happen. And hey, one hey, of the things that I sorry, go for it, Sarah. Oh no, Harvey, did they? Did, I, this occurred while I was listening to, to a panel. Did any of the reviews talk about the bird? <laughs> the bird. How the no, bird? Not, you know, the kind of iconic, like the killing of the bird. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Spoiler alert: If you want to see this and be surprised, turn this off now. But my favorite, like, so bad it's good moment in this show, is that Julie kills the bird by putting it in a, wor a food processor and basically like blends the bird into this yeah. pink mush that yeah. she then 
inexplicably slathers all over herself at the end of the play. I just, it was, yeah. it was, um, that's when it got really fun for me. I'm like, oh, I could totally get into Camp Julie. Yeah, and you can hear the you can hear the audience laugh. There are moments. It's one of the things about the NT live stream. You do hear the audience, and you hear those moments of comedy that maybe weren't intentional. Um, yeah. So, so one of the things that came out in the reviews uh, was a concern about the scale of the production uh, at the National Theater. You know, sort of you know, with the idea that you know when um, you know it was developed, it was meant to be essentially a chamber piece, right? You know, um, and what does it mean to take a piece that was meant to be on a quite small stage, very intimate? Um, you know, just what three characters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and then to expand it, you know, on a much larger um, in, into a much larger venue, uh, and does something get lost? You know, when you when you you know blow it up a bit, <laughs> you know, inflate it. Uh, and obviously, within framing, you're looking at you know the expanded frame or the, the expanded set for the national theater, but also the framing of the camera as as a spectator. So I'm just curious to know what like, what was your sense in terms of the scale of the production? You know, did it feel quite big, or did the national theater production via the camera make it feel more intimate uh, because of its focus? Well, in terms of the camera work, it sort of vacillated between moments of intimacy that I think are are very effective for this piece. Um, for the show itself, you know, for the story of of Julie, but also for this particular production. Um, but the the set design was actually huge um, because they included this, like, so the the offstage space of the dancing and sex and um, and everything else is actually a huge upstage space where we see the parties and a wall comes up and down to kind of separate those two. Um, something that I think the scale got lost for me was the consistency of the set design and its function, right? So there's a conceit, at least as I understood it, for most of the show that we can sort of see behind this wall, but that like what's happening, even when we can see it, what's happening behind the wall, we, you know, is not seen to the characters downstage of the wall until, uh, uh, you know, uh, about 20 minutes from the end when Jean and Julie walk through the wall into the other kitchen space. And I'm like, isn't that a wall? You know, I mean, like, and in fact, you can hear the, I mean, again, like it's, you can hear the audience kind of titter at that moment. Cause it's like, they just, you know, it's like, you know, they violated the rules of their own, their own space. So there's also a sense in which they didn't know how to manage that, um, that, sp- that space. And I don't think the set design helped them very much either because it's all totally lateral. Um, and so you can almost never triangulate people. Um, and and the play is is based physically around tri- triangles, you know. I mean, it is literally a love triangle, um, and there is a kind of triangulation of conformity and re- rebellion and power. And but you you could actually couldn't make people into robust, you know, a, a, acute triangles, right? They were just like were like these little slivers going back and forth laterally, except when they were in this huge space that they could. They also had difficulty filling on in the upstage. As I, I thought the set was beautiful in itself, but didn't necessarily serve the play. But I'm not sure that the play comes through in a way that it could have been enhanced by a different scenic strategy. Does that make sense? In other words, I think the the set in its grandeur, in its you know sort of clean lines and its 
you know, big tableau effects. And, and Sarah's right. They sh- there are these introductory sequences with all of the friends, the sort of bad and corrupting friends of Miss Julie who are dancing all the time. There's a lot of choreography throughout. Um, and it end, the play ends with this massive tableau. Julie has died on the floor. The whole set sort of retreats mechanically upstage. There's this bright white neon line around it. So it's this the set lends itself to a kind of tragic aspect, I think, a kind of grandeur and momentous, um, uh, you know, feeling that is not really lived up to by the by the by the play itself. But I don't know if that's a problem of the set or a problem of the adaptation. I'll say this about the filming, though. This was another instance of of you know sort of high quality stream of, of theater and performance that um, I I loved because. If you had a seat anywhere in that theater, if you were if you were close enough to really see what's going on on the faces of the actors, you would have been too close to see the sort of tableau effect. But watching it streamed with the, you know, very carefully orchestrated camera work, you get to see the big tableau effects when they're appropriate, and then there are moments when the close-ups are so close that you can see the the tears and the very minute um, facial expressions on the on the actors and the performances, whatever you would say about the rest of the production, the performances were quite excellent and these actors are quite excellent. Um, and so you could there's an added element of mise-en-scene where you, of course, you know, the, in the camera work, you pick the point of view that is best for the moment. And I think that that enhanced the viewing experience. So, you know, I, I enjoyed that. And I'm, I'm bullish on um, video distribution of theatrical work now having seen you know um the bronx gothic and 2666 and this i think it's a great i think it's a great thing for theater to be able to do this right so what is the difference in terms of audiences uh you know if there is one at all between a national theater live audience in the midwest versus new england so so (laughs) who was in the room with you how full was the uh uh the theater uh, and you know, were there any sort of outbursts, or how do people respond at the end, or even during the production? So I saw I saw this uh, at this lovely venue, the Waterville Opera House up in um, Waterville, uh, Maine. Um, uh, my partner and I saw it together. Um, I think we were two of maybe a dozen people, fifteen people. Um, we saw a matinee, so it was a uh, you know. Uh, uh, what you might predict for a, a matinee crowd. Um, and what is that? Uh, it was uh, older. Um, I, I, I think there were like a couple of, of like local college students. Um, you know, Waterville is right where Colby is, so there were a couple of folks there, but mostly an older, um, and, and you know, this being Maine, I think, um, except for Lena, an, an exclusively white audience, um, and, and kind of a polite, uh, uh, res- response um, in a, in what is a, tr- a truly lovely venue. I will I will go back there to see m- many other things, and they they did a nice job. I don't think anyone was as aghast at the show as we were, um, <laughs> at least not openly expressing that. But you know, so what else is new? And and, and how many seats are in that theater? Oh gosh, um, I, I would say maybe like eighty. Um. You know, I, I, I hope I'm not misstating that because I know they do, um, you know, and, and I think they've got, I mean, it's a charming little little space. Um, they've got like little balconies, but I think the orchestra, I would put it around around 80 or so. 
in St. Louis, we saw it at the Tivoli Theater, which is an old independent movie house. Um, and they put it up in their main um, uh, screening room. I'd say there's probably 300 seats in there. And I think we were... I also saw it with 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 my partner, um, and I think we were two of six or seven people, and it was an evening show, and I just couldn't imagine how it was economically sustainable <laughs> to do this. Um, uh, you know, the, the Tivoli regularly um, shows these these screenings, um, so there must be something that that makes it work economically, or maybe it's something that the proprietors of the theater do. Um, out of a sense of their own interest. Um, but it was a tiny house. And of course, it, it, it's interesting because the way they film it, you can see in certain shots the tops of the heads of the people in the London audience. And you can hear their you know, mumbling and their applause and their laughter. Um, and then you're in this basically empty room. I think when, I think when the, when the uh, performance or the presentation was over, there was a bit of applause. <laughs> like, like people thought, okay, we should we should clap for this. This is good, um, but uh, you know, basically an empty room, which was kind of an eerie experience in and of itself. Was there popcorn? Uh, it's available, but we did not have any. <laughs> so we wanted to have some time to talk about uh, an old issue in our profession: um, the ethics of undergraduate theater education, in the sense of. Um, what are what in what ways are we preparing students for um, a productive life in the art in the arts that we um, teach them in? So we read uh, an article from the New York Times, an old article that I'd never read, but that has kind of a reputation. Um, this article called the Juilliard Effect. It was published in two thousand four, and it at some length um, describes what has happened to the class of 1994 of Juilliard in, um, in orchestral music and discloses that a lot of these students have uh, gone on to do other things, even though they have the prestigious Juilliard degree. Um, so Harvey, uh, tell us a little bit about, I don't know, your perspective on this article or what you think this, um, what bearing you think that this article and this question has on our field. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, so the article, you know, as panel noted, came out in uh, December 2004 in the New York Times, so it's 14 years old, uh, but it tackles a uh, a ongoing perennial question that we face uh, in theater programs, which is, um, you know, how do we reconcile the fact that many of our students, many of our majors, 10 years after graduation, or even three years out from graduation, um, are not working as professional artists. Um, so you can be a theater major, uh, but 10 years out, you know, maybe fewer than half uh, are actually working actively in the industry. Uh, so how do we justify, what, what are the ethics, you know, of encouraging students to major in theater uh, or the arts at large when we know that um, it's likely that they will not you know, derive their lifelong career-based income you know, from working within the profession. Uh, and in light of the fact that we have um, lots of administrators within the arts you know, as, as co-hosts of this podcast, I thought it would be a worthwhile conversation to have. Uh, so panel, what are your thoughts? So when someone approaches you and, and, and asks, why should I be a theater major? 
Yes. Well, I'm, I'm a bit more practiced at this now that I've become the chair of my department. And really, my answer hinges on the on the idea that we're offering a liberal arts education. So this will not be a surprise to either of you, I think. But, um, you know, we offer a BA in theater. And we're, I think our department is unique in that we actually have multiple levels of coursework for a lot of different areas of theater, um, costume design, lighting design, scenic design. Um, uh, we have a stage management class that's on the books. But the we offer our major our majors in theater and in dance as liberal arts education. So the idea is not that this is primarily professional training for an industry um, like you might get in a BFA program, um, but that you choose your major to concentrate in one of the areas of human endeavor um, that characterize a liberal arts education. So we would think of the theater major as something you would contrast to a major in um, physics or philosophy or classics or uh, a, a national language or literature. And on those grounds, I think it's very easy to advocate for the theater education because in addition to the you know critical reading, research, and communication abilities that you gain um, through our course of study, um, you also get a lot of things that are, are good for a human being that you don't get in those other majors. The, um, the ability to manage complex tasks tasks to collaborate, to um, be highly organized. Of course, the specialty and empathy and sensitivity that I think theater and and dance majors get. Um, So obviously, most people who major in theater don't end up um, working in theater to pay their bills primarily. But the comparable thing is true. The comparable uh, situation is true in for English majors, art, art history majors, etc. And I think we can defend it in that way. Um, that might be a bit of a dodge, you know. I think I think increasingly parents and students think of their college education as something that's going to give them a head start in a career that's going to be lucrative as well as rewarding. Um, but I'm a bit old fashioned in the way I think of the advantages of a theater education, and I think of this as cultivating a whole person and giving them qualities that are going to make their life more rewarding um, in in ways other than job training. So I think there are two two strands to this, and, and panels a, a addressed one very well, which is the the value of theater in and as a liberal art, um, and the way that it it facilitates a particular kind of um, humanist um, investigation and reflection and analysis and creation um, in the world that I think produces knowledge, skills, and you know creative work that can serve a number of different fields. The other trend, of course, or the other side of that is the is the question of more specialized um, uh, professional or pre-professional training in the in the in the BFA tracks, and I think that. There is a real question there, and I'm always struck, like how you know. I always wonder, like, do like pre-law programs have this question? Um, you know, when we know that, like, you know, most a lot of people who go to law school, right? Where so we're talking like post undergrad, don't actually end up practicing as lawyers. Um, you know, I would be really interested to know the the stats on ten people after a prestigious medical program. Like, are they? You know, how many of them are still right? I mean, like some of it seems to me that every field has a kind of winnowing, and and particularly um, highly competitive, highly desirable fields for whatever reason, um, often train more people than end up continuing in in it, but that it is not necessarily seen as the detriment of the field itself, but as a a kind of healthy process that that gives 
um, you know, that produces the best doctors um, and, and, and gives us a certain kind of, of, of quality there. But I'm also, I, I also come back to this idea, and I'll expand it from, from theater and performance to the arts more generally. I, I think the arts, um, training in the arts, particularly as an undergrad, um, uh, is a bit like training yourself to be a Swiss army knife. It's, it's about giving yourself a range of different tools that are at your disposal and, and a range of different experiences in which you can deploy them. And that as we look at the current uh, labor environment and the trends of you know, so-called disruption and the potential you know, um, instability and the sense of insecurity, economic, political, et cetera, that we're kind of confronting right now, it seems to me that there are few better ways to prepare for that future than for giving yourself a course of study that provides you as many different kinds of tools and training as you can and also um, helps you figure out where you situate you in relation to all of the different changes and things that are happening around you. And I think that's where the arts, which do foster notions of, of expression and creativity, um, and are both collaborative and yet, um, you know, there is a kind of self-development and self-focus and, and cultivation of one's own uh, uh, talents and skills and abilities that, that can deploy in a number of different situations. And I think that that, that bedrock, that basis um, is uh, perhaps the best and most secure professional training that we can give young people who are then encountering um, what is likely to be several jobs over the course of their lifetimes, uh, what may include uh, individual um, uh, opportunities that they create for themselves. So um, more entrepreneurship than simply you know, moving from company to company, um, certainly in terms of you know, new media and thinking about you know, self-branding and a kind of liter- new, neoliberal uh, you know, m- mandate or, or recommendations. I think, I think the arts um, in general and theater and, and performance in particular really foster those particular skills and as such are probably uh, among the more valuable uh, majors on campus. So Har- Harvey, how did we do? <laughs> Very well. I, I think m- my sense is that arts programs, theater programs, performance programs in general just don't do a very good job of talking about the various, well, I'll take it in two ways. You know, one, uh, to talk about just how challenging it is to be a working artist, right? Uh, I think more often than not, you know, universities, and, and, and everyone does this, and rankings are often based upon this, you, you identify the exception. Right, you identify the you know the Meryl Streep like so. So for years, Yale School of Drama to pick Yale, um, you know, was sort of sold its package, its program around Meryl Streep, right? And it's like come to Yale School of Drama and you could be the next Meryl Streep. Uh, and you know, every year you know, you produce eighteen to twenty-five in that case MFA students, uh, and then how many of them have become Meryl Streep-ish, right? You know, a handful, right? You know, but it's a very small number out of the group. And I think that what we need to do is we need to you know, not just sell the dream, you know, the uh, really difficult aspiration, but also talk about you know, the successful people who are doing other things that might be outside of being an active practitioner. So why not have the image of Meryl Streep next to the person who is an, invest- an investment banker or a lawyer, uh, and then, you know, indicate and, and, and celebrate the fact that these are the many career paths that are available to you using the skill set you cultivated, you know, within theater and performance. Uh, but because we don't tell the other half of the story, um, you know, of people being successful in many ways within other career paths, uh, you know, we 
create a fantasy uh, in, in, in some ways uh, that uh, makes it seem like if you are not a working actor or a working director, or working playwright, then you failed, um, and that's a problem. You know, or you know, if you are a very successful banker or a lawyer or a doctor with a theater degree as an undergraduate, you have failed as a theater artist, right? And that's also a problem. You know, so I think we need to change how we talk about um, the merits of the major. So, Harvey, you're now the dean of an art school. Do you feel like? pitching the theater dance arts education in terms of at the you know at the sort of front door to the high school students and their parents as something where we know your we know your dream is to go into performing arts but also by the way this isn't going to handicap you and people come here and they end up with a variety of professional degrees do you think that if you started to market the educational experience in that way that you'd be at a disadvantage is this something yeah. where no i mean i mean we, i mean we're we're in a moment right now in which a lot of students regardless of which school you attend these students are double majoring they're majoring and minoring and things um and i think what's key is to not make that second major to not make that other minor be a hedge right where it's like oh if this theater thing doesn't work out i can always go into this other field you know but instead to talk about like how as sarah uh, was noting and you were saying the same thing panel um you know, like that there is within this liberal arts sort of, you know, education of the full being per, uh, approach, uh, you will gain these skill sets um, that will benefit you in a variety of ways. Um, so it's about like not uh, thinking of, of, of some other field as a fallback for a professional career. I think that's, that's really important. Um, you know, and that's a message that has to get out there. And it's also, like, as I said, celebrating success. So at BU, um, Andy Lack, uh, uh, who is the president of NBC News, is a theater alum, right? Graduated mm-hmm. undergrad in theater. You know, but it's a story people don't talk about uh, because it's not a traditional theater path, right? And mm-hmm. you know, I think we need to, t- to spend more time talking about those non-traditional paths people take, which when you tell those stories, you find out it's actually the majority of the paths that people are pursuing. Um, and then that will actually, I think, lessen some of the sense of stress that you know, young kids face when they're, you know, when they're facing you know, tuition paying guardians, you know, who are, you know, wondering why should one pay this tuition or incur debt to study the arts, you know, is to say, like, look at all the career paths that are possible, you know, if I, you know, take the time to cultivate this potential that I have. Yeah. Just my gut feeling. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, this, uh, I, I don't know, it, it, there's a way in which it feels kind of unseemly or, um, compromised to speak about the theater education as this marketable commodity. But listen, we're we're in higher education. We're trying to keep the institutions going and to keep educated people in the world. Um, and it occurs to me that, especially with anxieties about artificial intelligence replacing a lot of jobs that have to do with information management, calculation, decision making, um, you know, there's concerns about whole fields like architecture and law being totally remade by software that the theater major and the the specialty in in human collaboration and project management that these are actually skills and experience that companies want and that are not easily replaceable um, by computation i mean maybe this is a fantasy but a lot of work in the new economy is project-based, you know, creating new applications, creating new um, products for, mar- for for delivery that, you know, the things that, the, the sort of timelines that theater and dance people are used to working on, you know, 
six months, three months, whatever, um, that they can, if they find themselves trying to get jobs outside of the arts economy, that that's something that they can brag on. You know, I was a director, I was a stage manager, I managed a team of 10, 15 people to deadline. Like that, that type of stuff is, is pretty good. And, um, I think would be attractive to employers if that's the concern. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 yeah, go for it, Sarah. I, oh, I was just going to say, and, and just real quick, one thing. I don't think it's necessarily unseemly panel. I think the what's unseemly, uh, you know, I think I think that sort of idea comes out of a very different moment in education where very different people, where education was much more elitist, um, uh, fewer people were getting uh, college degrees and, uh, and, and we're not being, and they were coming from places where they were not being encumbered by, um, by a long-term debt that goes along with that. And I think that there's a real, I, I think there's a benefit in recognizing what our students come in with and what they need and, and, and that there is a, a, a much broader, more diverse range of, of students and, and, and their resources. And that, you know that these can be real skills, and that the economic anxiety is 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 very present for some of them, um, and a very real issue. And we need to we need to address that and and look at that really carefully, and also you know really help those students get something that is going to serve them uh, and be a value beyond um, beyond higher education, you know, beyond their time in higher education. And and I don't I don't see that as being incompatible with the fundamental ethics and principles of, uh, of, of study in the arts. Um, and I, and I, I would contest that very vigorously. Um, why don't we move on to our drafts? Listeners, drafts uh, are our thoughts in progress, our, our projects, our inspirations, what we're worried about, what we're reading, what we're thinking about. Uh, I want to dedicate my draft to um, Sarah Rule and Max Ritfo's new book, Letters from Max. So it is basically a compilation of letters shared between the very gifted playwright Sarah Rule and one of her former students, Max Ritvo, who was a student at Yale and took her playwriting workshop. And they began a friendship on the basis of this that ended in 2016 when when Ritvo um, passed away from from cancer. And it's just a terrific book. Much of it is in Sarah Rule's voice, and her prose is is beautiful and, and elegant and very touching and emotional. But much of it um, features Ritvo's writing, and he was a very talented poet and writer. And so it's just a treat. I recommend people pick up a copy. And I'm just going to share one line from um, one of Ritvo's poems, because the, the book, it, it sounds like it's very sad, and it is very sad, um, uh, Ritvo's story. But it's full of just the joy of life and the humor that um, makes Sarah Rules makes Sarah Rules work so great, um, and Ritvo's too. So there's a poem in the middle of the book that he shares with um, Sarah Rule, and it contains this line: "We drank Chardonnay White Brand, a wine so dumb you basically eat it." Which is like the funniest thing I've read <laughs> out of context. It's just the funniest thing I've read in a long time. So I recommend that book and um, and and go get a copy. Letters from Max by Sarah Rule and Matt Ritvo. Uh, Harvey? Yeah, uh, for me, and, and I think this is a draft that sort of pops up you know, every year when the MacArthur Genius Fellows are, are announced. You know, and it's that, I feel like in, the, in, in recent years, the MacArthur, but, and also, the, and also the, the Guggenheim, so the MacArthur and Guggenheim Fellowships, uh, they began as sort of mid-career launching fellowships. 
Uh, you know, so, you know, so the original idea was you, you, you take people with potential who are, the, who are showing a glimmer of, of doing great things, and what if we were to invest in a high level in their work you know, so they could you know, like jump to the next level? Um, and, and so that was the premise behind the MacArthur Awards uh, and then also the Guggenheim as well. So if you go back into the early Guggenheim Fellows, you'll see that it was often people who had just gotten tenure, had you know, just, just published their first book, and this is a you know, startup for the next book. Uh, and in recent years, I think with the decline in funding that's available for people, uh, you know, these awards have become career capstone awards instead. Um, and I worry about that loss of like, 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 where is the investment in new work, the next generation of artists, when these mid-career awards are now being given to people at the very kind of late stage of the career or after they, to be honest, they no longer actually need those awards uh, because they've already arrived, they're already established. So that's my draft. That's really interesting. Thank you, Harvey. That makes Sarah? me think, Harvey, of, um, I was talking to somebody who was like, you know, the idea of the mid-career artist doesn't exist anymore because it, it sort of assumes that you, you've achieved a level of stability and that for a lot of a lot, a lot of artists, even at a certain stage, like you still can't count on that stability. So, um, but I, I, t I take your point. Um, my draft is, uh, uh, is about teaching and uh, I teach a first year seminar and this is the, the second time I've taught it. Um, uh, uh, looking at, at, at critical theory and James Bond, the sort of James Bond universe, um, which is you know rife for investigating all kinds of things, uh, gender, colonialism, race, uh, uh, you know normative bodies, right? Uh, it's it's a it's a really, but. But wow, is this a challenging uh, social and political context to uh, to watch these films? And you know, I've taught the class before and and uh, and, and enjoyed it. And and this year, man, it is tough to like some of these some of these movies, even when you are looking at them incredibly incredibly critically. So so I am thinking very much that that I will keep the same format uh, in, going forward, but that I'm going to need a different. A different kind of stand-in. So, so I'm I'm using this actually as a way of crowdsourcing my future teaching to the podcast listeners, which is that I'm looking for subjects of popular culture that are sustainable over a 15-week semester, that have enough dimension and, and facets to them that I can intersect critical theory in a number of different ways. Um, and I will wow. take. I, I, I'm open to suggestions, and I, I appreciate in advance the the, the feedback. That's fascinating, Sarah. I've wondered about this in the context of this class uh, that I've offered. I've, I've offered it three times. It's a contemporary comedy class, and I haven't been able to offer it for the last couple of years, and I want to do it again because it's, you know, it's popular, and I enjoy teaching it, and it's sort of a, I think of it as a kind of gateway to performance studies. But it's been a few years and a few intense years, and I have units in there where we look at Andrew Dice Clay, and, and there's a lot, you know, a lot of comedy um, uh, embraces controversial problematic topics and I think that's part of what's great about comedy but I worry that offering this again after a few years I'm going to find students just rejecting it just saying I don't want to I don't want to treat this dispassionately um, that's a really interesting phenomenon well good luck uh, thanks I'm already <clears throat> trying to f filter and reshuffle because I don't think anybody wants to watch more Sean Connery. I really don't. Like, I, like, <laughs> I, got, I got like the kids are like, I'm like so done with it, which is well, too he, bad. Because I, mean, I feel like I feel like subsequent James Bonds become a little bit more sensitive and less monstrous <laughs> in their well, it's, in their it, performances. It's interesting. I mean, like the the James Bonds go up and down, right? They like James Bond is a great thing to study because it's been around for so long and it tracks 
its own culture so closely, right? So it's a, it's really a zeitgeist sponge. So if you you look at any movie, you can kind of look at what people are thinking about in that particular moment. You know, the <laughs> Russians are bad. The Russians are our friends. The Russians are bad again, right? You know, I mean, you just see all the yeah. kinds of play out. Um, but but some of the early stuff is 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 becoming increasingly a hard sell. Although I will just you know shout out in theater history to uh, you know. Uh, from Russia with Love has Lada Lenya as the like fabulous Rosa Kleb, right? The knife in the shoe. So, you know, there are some really kind of wonderful moments there. Fantastic. Um, Harvey, Sarah, thank you guys so much. It's always such a pleasure to get to talk to you once a month. Listeners, thank you for downloading. Thank you for streaming. And we will have more podcasting for you in about a month. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast. Podcast.